Welcome to Building the Base, a unique discussion focused on shaping our future national security industrial base during this pivotal time in our nation's history. For over 40 years, the nonprofit organization Business Executives for National Security, or BENS for short, has brought senior executives and best business practices from across our country together to address our nation's most pressing security challenges. The BENS mission is more important now than ever before. BENS is embarking on a historic project, gathering the best ideas and minds together to define the future industrial base that the United States will need to remain secure and prosperous for our future. And now you have the chance to be a part of it. It's a daunting task, a task the United States has not had to do at this scale since World War II. But it's also a historic opportunity, an opportunity to leverage new technologies, new business models, new ideas, and new voices to improve our country for the decades to come. Hear from top entrepreneurs and leaders from high tech, financial, industrial, and public sectors as they share their ideas and perspectives about how we can all work better together to ensure our national security and prosperity. We are excited to have you here with us. Here to begin today's episode, your hosts, longtime Benz member and leader of the Benz Technology and Innovation Council, Lauren Vadula, and former chief weapons buyer and innovator for special operators, sailors, and Marines, and now Benz distinguished fellow, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with my co-host Hondo Gertz. And we're really excited today to drill into some of these issues we've explored so far, but really from the policy perspective. And couldn't think of a better guest to have than former U.S. Representative William Mack Thornberry, who served as the U.S. Representative for Texas's 13th Congressional District from 1995 to 2021. So, for you know, good chunk of time there, and recognized how important uh, technology is uh, when it comes to national security and, and the threat landscape a while back now and have been working issues uh, along the lines of acquisition reform and um, trying to figure out how we can strengthen public-private partnerships from a policy perspective. So excited to dig into some of that today here, um, too. And, and one fact, fun fact, too, is um, Mac's family has ha- operated a ranch since 1881. So I just love hearing about that. And maybe we can weave some of that in today, too. So. Awesome. Uh, and good to, good to have you here with us, Congressman. So uh, a little bit in- interesting for me, normally, uh, it's congressman. I think we've agreed uh, we'll go Mac and Hondo. And, and usually I'm the one answering the questions uh, in hearings to the congressman. So uh, yeah, it's payback time. But no, it's uh, it's awesome to have you here with us, Mac. And as, uh, as Lauren uh, kind of uh, shadowed there, really interesting background. And, and we always like to hear how people, you know, people focus on the end of career, not the start. What how did you get to being here sitting with us? What was uh, kind of your story growing up and how did you, how did that get you into Congress? Well, I, th- I think the short story is my family thinks I'm really weird for, for what I've done. Uh, as, as Lauren said, I grew up on a family ranch and that's pretty much what all of my family has done. Nobody was involved in politics, but somehow growing up, I figured out that there were people a long way away who were uh, making decisions that uh, affected us seven miles down a dirt road outside a town of 2000 people in, in the Texas Panhandle. And so 
when I was a kid, I got interested in politics. And, and then my reading took me to World War II about junior high age. And so it was politics and national security basically from, from then on. After I graduated law school, I moved to D.C. without a job uh, just to see what it was like and ended up working for a Texas Republican doing national security, which was nothing but pure luck. Um, but I, I worked up here for uh, in D.C. for about six years on the Hill in the State Department and then went back home. My brothers and I started cattle, a cattle business next to our family place, practiced law. And then um, I ended up unexpectedly running for Congress at the worst time in my life, uh, as far as just made partner at the law firm, our kids were two and four, it made no sense whatsoever, but I did. And then you kind of wake up 26 years later and, you know, you've been there a while. That's awesome. And, and sir, you talked about your background and, and spending time on the ranch. And, and then here we are in Washington, D.C. So you know how to kind of navigate different cultures and people and figure out how to get things done. And so a big reason we started this podcast is because there's a lot of interest in figuring out how the Department of Defense and really the national security community can better work with startups in the high tech sector. And you saw these issues from your time on the House Intelligence Committee and as chair of the House Armed Service Committee. So I was wondering if you could Tell us why you think this is so important and when what really made you recognize this issue? Well, I think part of what you're describing is trans being a translator. And, and you're right. That's what a lot of politics is. It's taking it complicated issues and and getting down to the heart of the matter and trying to visit with your constituents or whoever about it. When you get to the heart of the matter of uh, U.S. national security, it is that we have a moral obligation to provide the very best that our country can provide to the men and women who risk their lives to defend us. I mean, that to me, that that's kind of where it starts and, and, and stops. And in addition to that, uh, you read a little bit of history and, and you realize that. And I used to have this quote in a speech I gave in the 90s, and I can't remember the, exactly how it goes. But it was throughout history, there have always been nations that have taken advantage of technological change and others who haven't. And those who do come out uh, victorious and those who don't get left behind. And and so, you know, we're the greatest country in the history of the world, but it is not inevitably so forever and ever. And 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 so uh, taking advantage of what this country produces technologically is the right thing from a big historical standpoint, but it's absolutely the right thing uh, on behalf of the men and women who who serve. So uh, as a as a career acquisition guy, you're legendary. Um, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I didn't say infamous. I said legendary uh, for a lot of the act reform stuff that. Uh, you and uh, your colleagues worked with Senator McCain and across the aisle uh, in a very non-bipartisan uh, way, uh, really trying to get at some of the systemic issues, uh, you know, and trying to streamline where we can and and shed some of the bureaucratic weight that's kind of uh, kind of barnacles that have grown on the system. Um, how how did you go about that? Do you think um, did you reach the goal you wanted or or what were some of the lessons learned as, as we think about this whole industrial base issue, which is very complex, multifaceted, many stakeholders? Uh, what, what can we learn from your experience trying to do the acquisition reform element of that? And, uh, and, and how should we be thinking about this 
reforms, not the right word, but really kind of new vision of how to really harness, as you said, all of these inherent strengths of our country. Yeah, there's probably a lot of of lessons and, and some of the basic ones go to the fundamental fact that any big organization has challenges with change. That's how it got to be a big organization. And, and when you get to be big, then you have people who have vested interest in continuing to do the way things the way that you used to do. And and so I really started focusing on this in, in, in the late 90s. You'll remember maybe the revolution in military affairs and some of the ideas that people had at that point for, for ways to improve our military. Obviously, 9-11 happens. We're all focused on terrorism for a long time. But, but, I, but I came back around to try to make a fairly intensive study of this, talking to people a lot smarter than me, uh, before I became chairman. And then I was incredibly fortunate to have Senator McCain become Senate chairman at the same time that I became House chairman. And we both saw this exactly the same way. So as, as you mentioned, we changed lots of laws and put new authorities in and did a whole variety of things, which I think were good. A, a lot of folks would say, okay, you, the authorities are in place. Now we need to go to the next step. And and part of the next step, in my opinion, is the budget, the spending, which has not been reformed in, in a similar way, but also the culture. So you've got the authorities there. Why aren't people taking more advantage of them, more like you did uh, when you had that opportunity in the Navy and before that at SOCOM? So, so uh Culture plays a big role. I think Congress can influence culture by the hearings it has and so forth. I used to threaten, and I never did it, and I regret it, is is having some pro, like three program managers who managed programs that did not work out and have them testify and pat them on the back saying, you did a good job of finding out what didn't work. We want people to take risk. And unfortunately, we've gone the other way in that we are not taking risk. We're afraid to change. And, and and meanwhile, you have to pay attention to what other countries are doing. And if we continue to not take risks, then I'm afraid we're not going to be able to continue to defend the country. So one of the great uh, things working with you uh, on the Hill is you were approachable to have a dialogue because I, I think what tends to happen is both sides, you know, everybody I would hear on the Pentagon side, well, we can't do this. Congress will never let us. And they self-limit use of the authorities given because of some perceived, you know, issue, what would be recommendations for folks on the executive branch? My sense is having those dialogues, you know, are is useful. There's a little bit of a sense of, well, if we we talk about it, they're going to not let us do it before we even start. And I think that's kind of a misperception. But yeah, you're you're in a unique place to give some perspective on that. No, I, I think being afraid to talk about something you would like to do, not only it prevents you from the kind of risk, smart risk taking that I was talking about, but it also will invite backlash. Communication, you know, in most things in life is is the key. Um, and, and come explain why you want to do it. What is uh, inhibiting you now? And and promise to stay in touch. And, and, and so I, again, I think part of the next step in my personal opinion is greater flexibility on the use of funds. And that's going to require the executive branch to come to Congress and say, we're going to 
tell you how we've spent the money. We're going to be very transparent about it, but we just can't promise two years ahead of time we're going to know exactly how we're going to spend money on a new software program or whatever it is. And and so that communication and transparency is what will allow us to have greater flexibility, I think. Yeah, that's yeah, it's it's kind of uh counterintuitive, I think, for some folks that have been in bureaucracy that, you know, well, the way to do what we need to do is talk less. And that generally does not work very well. Uh, no, and, 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 you know, and the rest of the story is people in the bureaucracies, people in Congress, despite popular belief, are generally human beings. And, and so human beings re- learning to trust one another, communicating with each other, that's how we get better. And, and we shouldn't be afraid to, to do that and shouldn't be afraid for somebody to say, oh, I think you're full of it. You're wrong. That, that's part of the communication. Mm-hmm. Mac, you talked about the cultural barriers to adoption of some of the acquisition reforms that you worked on. And pretty cool sitting here with both Hondo and you at really acquisition powerhouses, both on the legislative side and, and the executive branch. And so I'm curious for both of your reactions to this. But do you think the authorities exist to move faster? The acquisition process is complicated by design, right, because we need to enable fair and open competition, too. So do we strike the right balance here? Is there work? to be done or is it all cultural at this point? Well, Hondo's the expert, but I'll just report what most people tell me is that Congress has provided the authorities if they are, uh, can be understood and can be used. And, and so I, I think Congress always ought to be open to looking to see what could be done better and, and having the sort of dialogue we were just talking about to say, OK, we need to tweak this law or we need to change this or that. We always ought to uh, Congress always ought to do that. But generally, I think the authorities are there. It's culture. And, and I keep going back to the 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 money, the financing. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I mean, uh, folks thought the reason special operations could go fast was unique authorities, and they really didn't have any unique authorities. I have more authorities as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Uh, it's practices, it's training, and it's uh, dialogue to understand um, how to do that, at least on the acquisition law side. On the financial side, and, and I'm hopeful the PBB commissioned some of the work everybody's working on will help make sure we've got the equivalent flexibility. And then you've got to have the courage to use the full authorities you have, we have. And I I would encourage anyone out there uh, listening, if somebody tells you you can't do it, tell, ask them to show me where it says you can't do it uh, and actually go back and understand because what tends to happen over time is, you know, a lot of barnacles grow, a lot of old wives tales or old husbands tales grow. And, and suddenly you're you're told you can't do something, but nobody can point to the thing that tells you you can't do it. And, and, and if I could just add one thing, leadership matters a whole lot in this, uh, especially at, at DOD. If you have somebody like in Hondo's position who who are kind of pushing to, to try this out, you can do this, uh, then that makes a big difference. And if you have people in Congress kind of backing you up with that, partly by uh, pointing out the what happens if you don't. You know, that this, this kind of Austria, uh, 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 what am I trying to say? Fossilized system uh, that is not moving and compare it again to the adversaries, then then you, we can do 
much better than we see day to day. Well, one thing that, you know, especially uh, you learn in the special operations community is the risk of not doing something. And too many times in a large bureaucracy, it's it's more about the risk of doing something and less about the risk of not doing something. Uh, convention, if you're out in the if you're out in the field, you know, using an old piece of antiquated equipment that's very you know beat up, unreliable, that creates a lot of risk for commanders. We never weigh that when we're weighing bringing new equipment into the field. And so I think that's another element when we talk about risk. You've got to look at it from all stakeholders' perspectives, not just. Just uh, not just the acquisition one. And when we talk about all stakeholders, too, I'm curious from where you sat, is there anything the private sector can be doing better, too, as partners? Or sometimes it's protests that are slowing down the process, too. Or does anything come to mind about how the private sector could be a better partner? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the private sector can always do better at communication, just like we're talking, uh, because it really is three different languages in a way. You've got government. And, and you've got the tech sector and you've got the finance and investment sector, which is critical for this. Back to our point on translation, that's that's really what we need. But I, but I think your point is right. They're developed, at least in Congress and probably elsewhere, a suspicion that the tech sector didn't really want to work on national defense issues. And a lot of it goes back to some Google employees several years ago that made a big stink about working on a particular program. Uh, I I think that's changed, but I do think it's somewhat incumbent upon the tech sector to to verbalize. Yeah, we know our company is only here because of the freedoms which our country and our government give us. And we have a responsibility to contribute um, in a way that makes financial and business sense. And and that sort of, I, th- I think, attitude will help allay some of these suspicions that were developed and probably haven't gone away completely. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting, you know, watching where you're working in the sector, some of us who have gotten out of national security, many with non-traditional kind of companies. And I find a lot of that is communicating in translating and creating at least some common layers of understanding, which we need to form before you can get trust and then to identify, you know, Silicon Valley Defense Group, I think bands, a lot of these organizations serve a good, uh, good purpose from that perspective. But as, as uh, you know, um, we look at this future industrial network, um, what's your sense of where the opportunities lie to bring in the whole might of the our national power to that um and we talked a little bit about tech sector finance sector do you do you see an approach that will allow us to bring all those in and 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 how might congress be a player in that uh, from your experience i i think there is interest uh in a variety of industrial sectors to do business with the government to contribute to our national security but you cannot expect businesses to do that at a loss. Uh, Not that everybody has to make money every time they bid a contract, but I guess my point is we're really at an important time, in my opinion, uh, where there needs to be some winners. 
And so uh, if somebody makes both a commercial and a, say, a military version of something, they need to see that, okay, they're not going to lose their shirt by by, by messing with the Pentagon bureaucracy, getting all balled up with the lawyers and not being able to at least have a chance to make a profit on the military side of it. Because if that's what they take away, they're just going to focus on the commercial and we're not going to be able to have the kind of innovation we need to to defend the country. And I think a great place to start is just read the news about where other countries are investing in things like AI and a lot of space capability. And, and you know, the, the list goes on. Um, we, we can we can keep up with them. We can pass them, but we can't do it with a arm and a half tied behind our back. And too often our system has that effect. Now, you had so many years of public service and are now on the other side. And one of the organizations you spend time with is the Silicon Valley Defense Group, which is a strong partner of Ben's and and looking at some of these issues. So curious what attracted you to that organization and why you think the mission is so important. Well, when, when I was chairman of the armed services, I would try to make at least yearly trips to Boston, Austin, and Silicon Valley, uh, just because of what we're talking about. The hubs of innovation in the private sector, go talk to them, see what's going on. And, and one of my first visits out to Silicon Valley, uh, I became acquainted with uh, some of the founders of Silicon Valley Defense Group. McCain had had talked to them, and, and I think it was his staff that suggested you need to go talk to these guys. And it was the only place I saw that was trying to fulfill this role of being a connector for government and tech sector and finance. And and so I thought, okay, these are these these are some folks that are putting the pieces together, and that's what we need to be more of. So I appreciate, and I, I think they're still filling in, in many ways a unique role in 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 doing so. And at the same time, uh, I, we were chatting before we started recording. I worked with Ben's a number of years ago. You've got people who have obviously been successful in the private sector, understanding what it takes, having the leadership skills and and volunteering to be a part of an organization contributing to national security. That's the sort of spirit of service and giving back to the country that is so important for all Americans. And frankly, I think there is a lot of hunger out in the country to do that. We just make it too hard for people, for allies to to work with us sometimes. And and so I think both these organizations are trying to, to, to send it back in a better direction. Yeah, I would I would often say the thing that um, I wouldn't say would keep me from sleeping, but I'd wake up thinking about was, you know, a good idea somewhere somebody had in the country and didn't know how to get it to the national security realm and, or it was just so hard they would just give up. And then, as you say, some sailor or soldier is going to pay the price uh, for us not figuring that out. Um, we're here. Uh, Max wife's here with us uh, off mic. She'd be correcting everything Max said if she was on the mic, probably. But uh, but it brings to mind balance. And, you know, besides running a ranch, you know, running a committee, uh, running campaigns, um, all pretty busy, important jobs. Any tips you've had over the years to, uh, you know, kind of keep balance and keep your energy level up and not, you know, not get burned out as we go through this? I find a lot of, you know, folks coming up through the ranks, you look and say, wow, I just don't know how, you know, 
I'm doing this now, but I don't know how I can do it forever. And then I think some of us look and say, wow, that was, it feels like just yesterday when we started out. Um, any, any tips, tricks, uh, things you've learned over the years uh, that would, that would help, you know, how do we sustain all this great capability we're putting together, you know, even just in ourselves? I guess I would say motivation is the key. If you're doing something you think is important and, and, and it also brings at least some level of satisfaction to, to you. Um, throughout my time in Congress, I had college students who would be interns in my office all, all, all the time. I bet 75, 80 percent of them said they wanted to be lawyers. So I would push them on it. Well, why do you want to be a lawyer? You know, and, 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 try, and some of them really did and, did and have become very successful lawyers. But some of them uh, didn't really think about what it was, what it would be like, why they wanted to do it. They had maybe other interests that they didn't want to pursue just because they think it didn't sound as cool or as successful. And, and, and so I guess my piece of advice to them was was to be think about what would bring you satisfaction, maybe even over a lifetime. I mean, although nobody's locked into one job or anything, but but the kind of thing that really uh, helps you feel like you've done something important today. And if you can do that, then regardless of how much money you make, regardless of what other people think about it, you're going to have a relatively happy, successful life. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you look at your career, and, you know, running a ranch or running a committee or now running your own kind of successful thing on the side here. It's, um, you know, it's a lot of folks feel like they've got to, well, to do something, I've got to do one thing perfectly for 30 years or 40 years. And, you know, at least my experience has been, I think, some of yours trying a, a bunch of different things. One helps you figure out what you like and then two gives you context and a perspective that's broader than just the th- one thing you're in that's tremendously impactful over a career. And, and, and I would just add, when it comes to national security, that is increasingly the case where things we think of are not national security, like health care or other things affected it, it it's the the clear distinctions or silos okay this is national security this is not are breaking down and 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 so having that kind of bro- broader perspective learning something in the case say of healthcare that might apply to uh, uh, attacking terrorist organizations was was one example uh, those sort of cross pollinizations can actually be really beneficial in in solving difficult complex problems. And we talk about policies and some of the ongoing efforts, but at the end of the day, this is really a human endeavor here and and stimulating talent will be so key. Um, When we've talked to investors on the show, they talk about how they're investing in the people. And we've talked to folks at universities looking through programs to stimulate this interest and appreciation for national security and prosperity. So I'm curious if you've had any mentors, you talked about folks that you mentored in your office, but um, along the way that stood out to you as really key in influencing your career path? Well, the, the one that comes to mind is a, a lawyer I worked for all the time I was in law school. Um, and he took me to breakfast and, and talked to me about, OK, what are you going to do after law school? And he said, you know, you can go work for a Dallas or Houston law firm. You can clerk for a federal judge. But I know you've been interested in national in, in politics. You know, you could also just go see what what D.C. is like. If, if he hadn't given me a little kick, I would have never done it. Uh, 
And, and obviously my life would have been very different, I think, if I had not taken that. So it really goes back to what we were talking about before, trying to know your or think or try to know yourself well enough to know what brings you um, satisfaction. I mean, that that's what he did for me. And so I've tried to do an inadequate job of translating that to to other uh, folks that that I come in contact with. Yeah, I think uh, and maybe share your perspective. Sometimes you get in these senior roles and it's almost like people are afraid to ask you for mentoring or ask your opinion. And, you know, I like to bring every senior leader here um, and ask them to, you know, dispel another one of those rumors. You know, I think most um, folks who enjoy leadership really love to mentor, you know, love that is they see that as a core element of service Uh, and folks shouldn't be afraid to approach um, you know, senior leaders or former senior leaders and ask them, you know, for a little time or a cup of coffee. But, you know, what's your sense of that? Oh, I, I would take it even a step further, Hondo. Um, last fall, Sally and I had the opportunity to be a resident fellow up at the Kennedy School at, at, at Harvard. And and being around those young people, graduate students and undergraduate, uh, was incredibly encouraging and energizing for us. I mean, I got a lot more out of it than anything I gave them. And and to tell you the truth, sometimes you look at our politics and you can get kind of discouraged. Oh, my gosh, how are we ever going to solve these problems? But spending a little time around these bright, capable kids who want to find a way to serve just was a shot in the arm for us and very encouraging. We only half joke that we're about ready to turn it over to them now because uh, because it it, 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 you're right. Sometimes you can offer some help to somebody based on your experience or, or what you've seen, but but you get far more back from being exposed to to that to to that enthusiasm, that willingness to serve, that desire to make something out of your life, and it, it that's just one experience. It was wonderful for us. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, um, certainly. So getting back to this, you know, wicked problem, so to speak, of how to how we transform what I would say from a World War II industrial base plus 4% to, to where we need to be for the next, you know, 30, 50 years. Um, any ideas on simple steps we should be, you know, you, you can get lost in the complexity and then, you know, kind of argue, you know, it's like a airing of grievances and then we have the feats of strength and, and nothing ever changes. What's your suggestion, especially as you tackle like act reform, you know, taking small steps fast, what's the right, how would, how would you encourage all of us involved in this, um, solving this problem to get after it? Yeah, well, a couple of things come to mind. One, back to a point Lauren just made, people are the key. And we make it way too hard for people to come and help. We in Congress, we tried to put some things in, for example, and if somebody has cyber expertise to allow them to come serve for a while and go back to the private sector and make it easier to go back and forth. But but whether you're looking at uh, that or whatever, we need to make it easier for the people who want to contribute the companies, maybe the non-traditional companies who want to contribute to be able to do so. 
flow. And um, I've already mentioned, I think really important is flexibility of funding because you just don't know where the technology is going to go several years out. And if we could begin down that road, I think I think that is is really key. And, and, and having that sort of flexibility of funding will help attract private investment. You know, as big as the federal government is, it doesn't have enough money to do everything that needs to be done. We have to be able to attract private investment uh, for these these causes. The hard question for me, and you may have a better answer, is to what extent do you try to fix the whole system and to what extent do you keep developing these workarounds? And over the years, we've developed several of these workarounds uh, to kind of get around this, this slow system. And then the system tries to absorb the workarounds, you know, especially when they're successful. And, and, and I think that's that's organizationally, that's hard uh, to, to know which is the better course. But but we need to have some successes and we need to have people who are willing to learn from those successes and 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 therefore adopt uh, some of those approaches, even if, if, if adapted to their use. Yeah, I think, you know, another issue, you know, I know you were on the Foreign Relations Committee. We talked a little, you noted, you noted a little bit on allies and partners uh, and, and another area where we are. Sometimes it seems like we write policies to prevent us from giving stuff to our allies and, and enable our competitors to get it easier. Um, ideas on um, where we could be looking for new opportunities in terms of working with allies and partners. When I, when I think of an industrial network, I think it needs to include that broad swath uh, to give us diversity, resilience, and quite frankly, some parallel capabilities. Um, well, I would even take it a step further. We can't do everything on our own. We have to work with allies and partners. And as a matter of fact, the last op-ed I wrote in Congress in December 2020 was make, trying to make that point. We have this effort in Congress for Buy America. That's too narrow. It needs to be Buy America and partners and allies to have that broader base of innovation with the resilience you're talking about, but also to spread the burden some somewhat. So I think that's really important. And, and it kind of goes back to my theme a little bit. We make it too hard for people and companies and allies to contribute and and updating our export control regime to me is really an, an, an important thing to do. Uh, and and. You know, we're just seeing evidence of what's happening in Ukraine, how important it is to have more capable partners able to defend themselves. That's less that we have to do. And and so finding ways to help them build up uh, and uh, defend themselves is is crucial. And, and of course, the, the flip side of it is if we don't do it, other people are going to be there. And you've seen China and others make uh, a lot of sales in the Middle East in the past couple years because we have been too reluctant to, to help people who want to work with us. It's a great point because especially looking at Benz and SVDG and working with companies that have such a global footprint and, and navigating now almost this new world where we we don't have as free and open borders or for companies to really understand the threat that our adversaries pose and striking the right balance between prosperity and security. And that's so, so much of why we wanted to have 
this podcast and, and this effort through Ben's. And so I'm curious if there's anything we haven't asked you that we should have or anything come to mind that we haven't covered. The only, the only thing I would go back to is kind of one of the fundamentals here. And that is, I think it is incumbent upon everybody in leadership, especially political leadership, to educate and remind the American people how their daily life depends on a strong defense and national security. And and I got to tell you, I don't think I did as well on that as I should have during my time in office. Towards the end, I started going around the country to chambers of commerce and community leader groups, trying to make the connection. Yes, the the military helps defeat terrorists. And yes, it helps keep the you know bad guys at bay. But it's also what makes it possible for you to earn a living with freedom of the seas and freedom in space. And, and, and you know, and I'd always do the the uh, gas pumps connecting to the satellite just to drive it home. Your daily life depends on the freedoms and security that the military provides. I, to me, that's kind of what underlies all of this. And and all of our national leaders need to do a better job. Sometimes Americans know it, but they need to be reminded of it. And 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 that's part of the responsibilities of leadership. I think we can all do better at doing that. Mm-hmm. It's a really great point because earlier you talked about how Google pulled away from their work with the Department of Defense, which was in 2018. So not that long ago. And just last week, Google's very publicly rolling out their defense business and this new entity that they're creating and this passion for supporting defense. And I think with the conflict in Ukraine, we're hearing more and more appreciation for prosperity and uh, interest in contributing. So to your point, I think about transparency, DOD defined ethics and principles around AI and the use of artificial intelligence, as did Google between now and then, which I think was a really important dialogue to have when we're thinking about how we're using these new technologies. So a great point today about just translating between communities, having that transparency and collaboration. Yeah, Mac, uh, again, thanks so much for joining us. It's a real special treat to have uh, somebody with your stature, reputation, uh, and experience here joining in. And and to all those folks out there, I can tell you on a day-to-day basis, um, what you're hearing is what, what's, what happens every day. Uh, I've seen it with small startups. I've seen it with uh, interns sitting here listening to this podcast. Uh, you know, he uh, he's really contributed lots during his career and continues to contribute and, and lives by that. You know, we're all listening, all in this together. Uh, and it's our duty to, to serve and ensure we can protect our freedom and prosperity. Well, it's going to take us all uh, to contribute however we can. So I appreciate this opportunity to visit with you all about it. Thanks so much, Mac. Thanks, Mac. You've been listening to Building the Base a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.